0: Audra, that was magnificent. Good job. Well, I'm going to say a word this morning, and uh, you don't need to respond out loud, but I want you to make note of the first thing that comes to your mind and the first thing that uh, you feel in your gut when I say this word, all right? It's quite a buildup for this word that's coming, okay? God. Now, nearly every human culture has wrestled with that word and what it means. Who is God? I mean, that's the question, right? What is he like? What does he do? Is he angry with me? Does he love me? Does he love everyone? What is God like? I mean, that's a significant question. That is the question. And the vast majority of people in the world believe in some aspect or some form of deity in the divine. But all of our concepts of God are vastly different. You go to cultures throughout the world and their belief about what God is like varies so much. Why? Why is that the case? Well, people's beliefs about God vary so much because there's something that's rather mysterious about the divine. There's something transcendent and mysterious about the idea of God. I mean, you look around at creation and the Bible says when you see the order in creation, it's very natural to think, okay, there's somebody bigger than me out there that made this. I mean, that makes logical sense. But... The next question is, what is that someone like? What sort of being is he? And we ask those questions because we don't see him physically. And so how do we know about him? How do we know about God? Mankind's search for understanding the divine is a little bit like what I do when I grope down the hallway in the middle of the night and stumble over toys that have been left there and I'm trying to find the light switch. That's what it's like when you when you try to figure out what the divine is like. And if our search for God as humanity is like one of us stumbling down the hallway in the darkness, then Christianity has some very, very good news for us. The Gospel of John opens with that good news. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then listen to verse 18 in John chapter 1. It's not on the screen. No one has ever seen God. He's mysterious. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And then go back to verse 14 in John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth and that is what separates christianity from every other religion in the world we've seen god he has revealed himself to us this is what makes us different than islam than buddhism than hinduism god is transcendent He's mysterious to some extent, and yet at the same time, we have a very real and very tangible picture of what God is like. And we see that very real and tangible picture in the person of Jesus Christ. One author said it like this. thought this was helpful. In Christ, the word, we exchange darkness for light as we think of God. For he perfectly shows us an unsurpassably desirable God, a kind God who is against all that is wrong. I love this a God who thaws us, melts our hearts, and only when we see that will we truly love him. And so the way to access the mystery of the divine is through God's perfect revelation in Jesus Christ. You start with Christ. And this is a good point to remind you that the whole purpose of our study of the gospel of Mark is to know God better. It's to not walk in darkness regarding our relationship to God or who he is. It's to see him more clearly. And the reality is that this creator God who none of us have seen has come in the person of Jesus Christ and he does things like feed 5,000 people with bread and fish so that we will know who he is and know what he's like. That's the drama that is unfolding in the gospel of Mark and we get to witness that and see that and know God better through Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're gonna do again this morning. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in the last part of this chapter, and this will be our last Sunday in Mark uh, during this year. We'll go back to Mark in the new year, but uh, we're going to do a couple of Sundays about Christmas, the Incarnation. And some other things will be happening at the end of this year. But this is our last Sunday in Mark. Mark 6, verse 45 is where we're going to start. And this morning, as we think about Christ revealing God, the Trinity, who he is to us, we're going to see two actions of Jesus that increase our knowledge of God. So two actions of Jesus, things he does in this text that increase our knowledge of God. And the first one of these is that Jesus... Shows, And I think you'll understand this better as we go along. So Mark 6, verse 45. Last time we saw Jesus feed 5,000 people. Um, It's a great story in all four of the Gospels. Here in Mark in particular, Jesus is portrayed as the one who feeds these 5,000 people as the good shepherd who provides. And remember, the whole issue is was that all of these people are out in the wilderness in a desolate place, and they're there with Jesus and the disciples, and they're listening to him teach and preach and share the news of the kingdom with them, and it became late in the evening, and they didn't have any food. And so they weren't able to access it, and so Jesus does this miracle to provide for them. Now, think for a moment about the environment immediately following that miracle, right? They don't have any food. They're out in a desolate place. Jesus somehow breaks bread and fish and everybody has food. And there's 12 baskets of food left over. And it says that everyone ate and was satisfied. They were full. Okay. So all of these people out there, this happens. What would the environment have been like right after that miracle? Well, there's some indication in the previous passage, we didn't talk about it a whole lot, but there's some indication that all of these people were following Jesus out into the wilderness because they perceived him as being some sort of a political revolutionary and that their desire was to take him and to overthrow Roman rule under his leadership. And so you can imagine the environment, if that's even a part of the motivation, and Jesus does this miracle, the people, their imagination is running wild. They're thinking, if this guy can provide for us like this, then the possibilities are limitless. We don't have to be under the thumb of Rome anymore. This guy can lead us to create a new nation and rule ourselves. And so their thoughts are probably running wild. And it's in light of that, that Jesus takes action in verse 45. Look there, immediately, a sense of urgency here. He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So he probably recognized some of the the thinking that was happening here. If you go to the parallel passage in John 6, you can see that. So he puts his disciples on. He's trying to get them out of there as fast as he can before they carry him away to make him king. Puts the disciples in the boat and starts to send the crowd away. The disciples launch out onto the Sea of Galilee and Jesus dismisses the crowd and does something different. Look at verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. We saw this in Mark chapter 1. This is very familiar for Jesus in the Gospels. He takes time to go away by himself and be with his father in close communion. It's important to him. So the disciples are out on the lake. Jesus is up on the mountain. So what happens? Look at verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So you have these experienced fishermen They're out on the Sea of Galilee, which they had been fishing their entire lives. They're very familiar with it. They're out late in the evening, and it really should not have taken them very long to get across the Sea of Galilee. It's not a big lake. But the wind is pushing them back, and so they're rowing on the lake, and they can't make any headway at all. And so they're literally stuck out in the middle of the lake in the middle of the night. Look at what it says. This is interesting in verse 48. Remember, Jesus is up on the mountain praying on the shore. The disciples at night are in the middle of the lake. And look at verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Not an ordinary guy that can look from a mountain in the middle of the night and see with no lights his disciples in the middle of the lake struggling against the wind. Obviously, something is going on there. So the disciples are stuck, and really, they're not in any immediate danger. It's not like what we saw in Mark chapter 4, where the boat is going to capsize and there's a storm. They're just stuck in the middle of the lake here. And so Jesus decides to take action. Look at verse 48, the rest of verse 48. And about the fourth watch of the night, so that would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., so getting close to morning time. Maybe there's a little bit of light starting to come over the horizon, Between 3 and 6 a.m., the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. They've been fighting against the wind for a while. And Jesus, even though there would have been waves with the wind stirred up, Jesus walks across the water out to them. Now, this is obviously not Jesus walking on a sandbar that was slightly submerged beneath the water and making his way out to the disciples. Because some commentators will tell you that that was what was going on. But it's clearly not the case because they're out in the middle of the lake. And they're very experienced on this lake. And they would have known where submerged sandbars were. So Jesus walks out on the waves and the water. Now this is a very familiar story to you. But what does that tell us about Jesus. Well, obviously you can look at this and read it and think, well, obviously he's divine. He walks on water. No no human being could do that. And that is true. But if you look back into the Old Testament, there are some very clear passages that tell us about the only one who can walk on water. We've seen Jesus or we've seen God have authority, Jesus have authority over the wind and the waves in Mark chapter 4. But here we see something different than authority. Here we see him on top of the water, walking on it as if it were dry land. And I want to show you a couple of passages that talk about this. Psalm 77. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The Old Testament talks about Yahweh being the one who treads on the sea and his footprints are unseen because he's walking on the water. There's another passage that I wanna read to you. It's a little bit longer. You can turn there if you want. It's in Job chapter nine. Now remember in the book of Job, Job has these horrible things happen to him, and these, his friends, quote-unquote, are coming to him, trying to help him understand. And a lot of the conversation is about what God is like, what sort of a God rules over the world, and what does he do, and who is he? And it's in light of that that Job talks about that here in Job chapter 9. I'm going to read all the way, one to verses 1 through 10. Verse 1, Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. And then he begins to describe this God. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. Who commands the sun and it does not rise. Who seals up the stars. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Who made the bear and Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. So obviously, you know this. In the Old Testament, God is the one who has authority. And God, Yahweh, is the one who walks on the sea. We know that. But if you go back to Mark 6, there's something else very interesting that's happening here that tells us more about Jesus. Look at verse 48. He came to them walking on the sea, which we know from the Old Testament, but then there's this weird phrase there. He meant to pass them by. Why in the world was Jesus trying to walk by them? Wasn't he going out to them to help them in the boat? Is his goal really to walk all the way across the Sea of Galilee on the water and wait for them at the other side when they got there the next morning? No, I don't think that's what he intends to do. But this phrase is significant. Don't just overlook this phrase and wonder about why it's there. And again, this takes us back to an Old Testament precedent. Think back to when Moses had led the people out of Egypt And he asked God to show his glory to him. What does God do in that circumstance? I'm going to show you a passage. I think it's up here. Exodus chapter 33. There it is. Notice what God does to reveal himself to Moses here. And the Lord said to Moses, "'This very thing that you have spoken I will do, "'for you have found favor in my sight, "'and I know you by name.' "'Moses said, "'Please show me your glory.'" And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Think about the story of Elijah in Kings. Elijah's depressed and he goes out onto the mountain and God sends an earthquake and the storm, but God tells Elijah that he's going to reveal himself to him when he passes by him. I think that's exactly what's happening here in Mark chapter 6. It's not just accidental that Jesus is going to pass by the disciples on the boat. His goal here is to reveal himself and who he is to the disciples. He wants them to see this action that only God can do. And he wants to display who he is to them by passing by them on the boat. The same way that God does in the Old Testament. I mean, this is very clear. It should be very clear to the disciples, but they're the disciples and we've come to know them. Think back to the feeding of the 5,000. They're struggling with taking care of these people and shepherding the people the way Jesus wants to. They don't have compassion on them. They've been slow to trust Jesus and to recognize who he is. And we'll continue to see that in this gospel. And so here Jesus gives them a very real demonstration of who he is. It's rooted in the Old Testament. Something only God can do in the way that God would do it. He's showing himself to them. What is their response? Look at verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. Now this would be the appropriate response to deity without the compassion of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is how you would respond to a raw display of the power of the divine. But they're not understanding who Jesus is as the compassionate king and compassionate God. But in his compassion, he wants to teach them and he wants to bring them along. So look at verse 50. But immediately he spoke to them and said three things to them. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, two of those, the first and the last one are Intended to calm them down. They're a little bit disturbed in the middle of the night to see someone walking across the water. But the middle thing that he says there is interesting. In your Bible, just like in mine, in the ESV, I don't know what translation you have, but it says, it is I. That is not how it should be translated out of Greek. Do you know what it says in Greek? I am. Jesus didn't say, hey, it's me. He said, I am. Now, where do we hear that phrase in the Old Testament? All the way back in Exodus chapter three. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Jesus passes by, the disciples don't get who he is, and he speaks the words, I am here to them and reveals God to them and to us. And here's what we can take away from this whole scene here. It's what we talked about at the beginning. We would not know God apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and pierces the night The darkness of our understanding like a floodlight revealing God to us. This is how we know God. He passes by. We see him in scripture and we know God through him. Everything becomes clear through the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of our knowledge of God begins with him. He's the starting point. Everything opens up to us through the son. Who came to earth as a man. It's like the key to a treasure chest. And when you access God through Jesus Christ, you get the whole thing and you know who He is. The disciples aren't quite there yet. Look at verse 51. And He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, rightfully so. But not necessarily the good kind of being astounded. For, verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves. They're not seeing it. They're not seeing who he is in his compassion and his power. They're not seeing it as he reveals himself, he passes by. They're not even seeing it when he says, Take courage, I am. They don't get it. Why? The end of verse 52, but their hearts were hardened. I mean, these are the guys that are with Jesus all the time, and they're failing to grasp it. This is a helpful warning for you and I. Knowledge of God is not our automatic right. It requires a right assessment of Christ, a right trust in him to come to the Father. And it also tells us that to know God better, to grow in our faith, that we have to become acquainted with the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the path. He is the way. He's the light. He's the bread. He's all of those descriptions that give us the knowledge that we need. So Jesus shows. That's what he does. In his incarnation, in his character, he shows. He reveals to us. And what we see in these first few verses here is we see a very transcendent picture of God in a lot of ways. A God who controls nature, who walks on water, All those Old Testament passages describe him as one who rules over nature and the world and mountains and unbelievable power. But Jesus doesn't just show us that God is transcendent and sovereign and powerful. He's also the key to unlocking God's grace and kindness to us. And that's the second action of Jesus that we're going to see here. He shows, he reveals, and he also saves Verses 53 to 56. Look at verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. So Jesus gets into the boat. They land at shore because the wind ceased. Most likely it's early in the morning. Look what happens. Verse 54. I'll read all the way to 56. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is, a, this is one of those short summaries of the ministry of Jesus. And we've seen these in the Gospel of Mark. And every time we see one of these summaries, Jesus is doing very similar things. He's having compassion on people. He's healing people And the fact that we see this over and over again in the Gospel of Mark should tell us something about who Jesus is. And then ultimately, it should tell us something about who God is. This is what God is like. He is a God who is compassionate and who desires to make us whole. The whole point of Jesus walking on water and revealing himself to the disciples was that he shows us what God is like. And Jesus also shows us what God is like in the middle of summaries like this. He has compassion and kindness, and he wants to bring us to wholeness. And it's interesting as you read these these miracles that he does here, And you think about the physical healing that Jesus provides. This is not the only and the best thing that Jesus can offer. In fact, this physical wholeness points us to a complete and total wholeness and a complete restoration of our relationship with God. A spiritual wholeness, a freedom from the sickness of sin. This tells us that ultimately that's what Christ is going to provide, that he saves One author said this, and I think it's helpful. The physical blessings of Jesus are not an end in themselves, but a fork in the road. One branch of which leads to Jesus's final saving purpose. And that's what we want to see these things as. The other to a false understanding of Jesus as simply a wonder worker. And so the compassion and kindness of Christ displayed here teach us about the character of God. we talked a few minutes ago about Jesus passing by the disciples on the lake in order to reveal God to us. And then we read from Exodus about Moses asking to see God's glory. And God said that he was going to pass by Moses and he was going to proclaim his name to him. And what does he proclaim about who he is when he passes by? Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed... When you read this passage, if, if you're thinking about it, it's almost like you have two competing character qualities here. You have a God who is compassionate and merciful, and yet at the same time, he's not going to clear the guilty. And if you think about your own life, there's none of us who are worthy of the steadfast love and compassion of God because we all fall into this second characteristic here. We are the guilty. And we're deserving of him judging our guilt and our iniquity to us and then to our children's children and the third and the fourth generation because our iniquity is so heinous and so terrible. And there's a tension here as you see God reveal himself, isn't there? How can he be both of these things? How can he do this? And that tension is resolved through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals to us the compassion of God and the justice of God. And he brings both of those things. They're not at odds in the father, but he brings both of those things together by taking the punishment that we deserved. It's only through the work of Jesus Christ that God can be both compassionate and just and that he can forgive sinners like you and I. Romans chapter three. Let me read you a couple of verses. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us fall into this second character quality here, the guilty. But, verse 24, and are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. Why did he do this? This Was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to harmonize these two qualities. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He can still punish the guilty and have compassionate love and affection and declare us righteous through the work of Jesus Christ. How would we be able to grasp that apart from Christ coming? We wouldn't. He is light. He shows us the nature and the work of the Father. And so while the world around us stumbles to make sense of the mystery of deity, even tries to understand how they relate to God, you and I have the truth The very centerpiece of our faith is Jesus Christ. He makes sense of the world. Everything comes together. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. He reveals the compassion and the justice of God to us. So what does that tell us for our lives? One of my favorite parables that Jesus tells is that short little parable about the guy He's walking through a field one day and he finds the treasure in the field and he goes and he sells everything that he has and he takes his money and he goes as quickly as he can and he buys the field with the treasure in it because of the indescribable worth of that treasure. And it's such a simple little parable and I love the lessons that it teaches us. Our lives should be focused on knowing Jesus Christ because he is the treasure. Everything else opens up through a relationship and through our growth and our knowledge of him. He's the centerpiece. He is the treasure. So sell everything you have and buy him. That's the lesson. Come to him through faith and trust and go back to him every single day and every single week and in this Christmas season and seek to know him and learn from him. And all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the incarnation that we begin celebrating this week. We're thankful for the revelation of who You as the triune God are through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We would be lost in darkness without Jesus. He's the light of the world. And so I pray for us as we walk this week in our daily lives. That we would make Christ the centerpiece. That we would come to him for knowledge, for understanding, for illumination of everything, Lord. I pray even now as we take the Lord's Supper that our thoughts would be focused on him and that we would know you better through this time of celebration together. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.